Well, thanks, Doug, and good morning, everybody. Hey, I'm filling in for Jamie this week. He's out. He had a last-minute surgery on Thursday for his mouth, and so on his behalf, we let him take the Sunday off, and for our behalf, that would be very interesting, uh, him speaking with, uh, you know, after recovering from surgery. Um, but I was excited to be able to have the opportunity to share with you until I figured out or I heard what we're speaking about or what the series is about, and I realized it's about money, and I go, great, right? And I think some of us, when we, when we hear that, oh, the church is going to talk about money, well, that's such a new idea, but we have that response. In fact, I remember even last week as I heard Pastor Ed share about giving, I, there was just a gentle response in my heart of resistance to to what he was saying. Um, I know this to be true. In fact, actually, I thought about so much that on Tuesday night, I had a dream, okay? Now, I normally don't remember my dreams, but I, and I'm not a big dreamer, so this was very unique to me. I had a dream that as I was preaching this morning, okay, I remember clearly, here I am speaking to you, you were all talking to one another. Some of you had your hands over your heads like this. <laughs> Others were sleeping, And so I'm here, I am preaching, pouring my heart out, and no one's listening, so I stop, which is a technique you learn in middle school ministry. If everyone's talking, you know, you stop, it eventually brings the house down. Well, I stop, and you continue to do it. And so, great disappointment, I give you the the bad number one finger and walk off the stage. (laughs) Now, that's my dream, okay? That's my dream. Don't get upset, don't email me, or the pastor's here. That's a dream, all right? But I know there's generally that response. And I almost say it's like we're due the Heisman to God when it comes to giving. Instead of going like this, we're like this. And some of us this morning may come in here with the resistance going, no, you're not, Pastor, whatever you say, whatever God speaks to me, you're not having my money and you're not getting close to my heart. And can I tell you, listen, I don't care what you give. It doesn't affect me. I'm so low on the totem pole. Whether you give or not, it's not going to affect my paycheck, okay? It's really not. But what I do care about is the condition of our hearts and our obedience to God. That's what I do care about. So I want to take a moment just to invite God in this place because I know the resistance. I know what some of you have seen. I know there are television shows where you're seeing preachers that are preaching to get wealthy, preachers of L.A. I know some of you have experienced back in the day with Tim, uh, Jim Baker, I know you've seen the the scandals that have gone on in the church. The prosperity messages that are being preached. I mean, you've seen it. We come from different backgrounds. I've been a part of it. Manipulation and this all taking place, taking advantage of the poor. I mean, this stuff angers me. It should anger you. And I know sometimes when it comes to the church and money, there's just resistance. So let's invite God into this place. That maybe he would hear his truth hear what he has to say to us, that that he would speak to our hearts this morning. So, Father, we just want to invite you right now that you would walk down these aisles and come speak to our hearts, Lord, that we would hear your truth, that you would reveal to us the condition of our hearts, Father, that we wouldn't play games with you or one another, but that you would come so gently and loving like you always do, minister to us. Do what only you can do and change hearts, God. Change our hearts, for we all need renewal. We need change this morning, Lord, we pray. In your name, amen. All right, so in our passage, we pick up in Matthew 19. We dive right into the middle of Jesus' ministry. You know, he's with his disciples, and he just recently got on to the disciples for uh, 
prohibiting them from allowing the children to come to him. And now comes this young man who we would consider probably an A-plus potential disciple. And this young man finds his way through the crowd to finally get to Jesus with a big question that is on his mind. Look at verse 19. I mean, chapter 19, verse 16. It says, the rich, this rich man, this young man, he comes to Jesus with this fundamental question. Teacher, what good thing must I do to gain eternal life? It's a great question. And Jesus answered him, why do you ask me about good? Only God is good. And then Jesus goes on to say, he says, keep the commandments. Wanting more from Jesus, this young man asks another question. Well, if I'm going to keep the commandments, tell me which one, Jesus. Jesus answers with five of them. Let's read them there. There, do not murder, he says. Do not commit adultery, steal, give false testimony. Honor thy father and thy mother. Love your neighbor as yourselves. Now, this, this answer probably brought a, a smile to this young man's face. See, he'd kept these. You know, in fact, th- these commands can be sum up a Jewish view of what it was to be a good person. He's led a good life. In all sincerity, he answers this question, yeah, this is my life. And if we were to look at these commands, if you do so now, we would go, yeah, th- this is a good person. Actually, this would be somebody I want as a friend. This is, this is someone I would like as a neighbor. You know, because I would know that he or she isn't going to steal my stuff or my wife. That's a good thing, right? And they're probably the type of person that will let you borrow their leaf blower. You know, I mean, they're just good people. And they look like a majority of us in the churches today. Now, the first twist to this story is this. Here's the first twist. Is that after he, after he has claimed to keep the commands, it's this, that he still senses a lack. Listen, after he's followed the rules, after he's saved the whales, after he's grown up in church and did all what good people do, still, it still leaves him empty. He's still lacking. He's a good person. He's done what he ought to do, but they're still lacking. He's still searching. And, you know, the U2 hit puts it directly as it is that he still hasn't found what he's looking for. See, legalism always falls short of God's intention. And it always leaves us lacking. But I love, he still has spiritual ambition, which is a good thing. He wants more from Jesus. I mean, really, is this all there is? I think that's the question he's asking. I'm rich, I'm doing good, life is good, but I'm lacking. There's something missing in me. Is this all that life has? And so he asked Jesus another another question. Well, what do I still lack? And as much as we would applaud him for his zeal here in this moment, I also get a sense that he thinks he can fix it. That's such the American way, right? We think we can fix anything with duct tape, right? Can he work hard enough? Can he be good enough? Can he give good enough to to solve the solution to the problem? What must good thing does he have to do, Jesus? Now, it doesn't say this in our version, but in Mark's account of this story, I love it, is that Jesus looks at him with love. If you miss this, if you miss that part this morning, I'm telling you, you miss it all, is that Jesus answers this man with so much love. Verse 21. If you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, 
then come follow me. He says this with love, and he says this with truth, and Jesus doesn't play around. Now, his answer surprised him, and I think the most surprising thing, I think, is the first part of this answer. If you wish to be perfect, see, this man's request about what good thing he has to do, he now stands face to face with a standard, with a goodness of a level that proves too high for him. Listen, we all think we're good compared to, you know, your neighbor or compared to somebody. But perfection? Perfection is only found in Jesus. It's only found in a relationship with Christ. See, Jesus here is, is going after this man's heart. It's really not about his stuff. Because often as Americans, we'll read this verse and we go, man, Jesus is after his stuff. What I'm telling you, that's not the truth. He's after his heart. See, did you notice the commands before? Mentioned earlier, were all about his relationship with one another, not about his relationship with God. And we know the number one command is that he would love the Lord your God with all your heart. That you would have no idols before him. And see, this is what Jesus is going after. And he's really asking this man, the question maybe he's asking all of us today is, what does your heart beat for? What does your heart beat for? See, Jesus was saying, if you truly desire eternal life, you truly desire heaven, then you'll prove your sincerity in selling your possessions and giving what you have to the poor. Now understand this, this does not mean if he obeyed this command, this would merit salvation, but this would be evidence that this man desired salvation above everything else. And we consider Jesus as priceless treasure, which no sacrifice would be too great. That's good stuff. Is Jesus priceless? Is he the priceless treasure which no sacrifice would be too great for? Let's look at the young man's response. Verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Is the problem with being wealthy, is the problem with having millions or billions? I would say no. See, his love of his possessions proves to be the real problem. You get that? His love of his possessions proved to be the real problem. His love of his status is the real problem. Listen, he has lots of wealth, but I would say in reality, he doesn't have it, but the wealth has him. Do you remember Smeagol from Lord of the Rings? With the hobbits and Frodo on his way to destroy the ring. And Smeagol at one time owned the ring. And Smeagol always refers to the ring as my precious. Some of you probably can do a great interpretations of how he says it. Me wants it. I have to have it. And he fantasizes and he craves it. And, he, and he, all he is thinking about, it takes over him. All he has to have is that ring. Listen, he no longer owned the ring, but the ring owns him. It consumes him. Now, as we look at this passage, I find it very interesting that this is the only person, check this out, this is the only person in all of Scripture that God asked to sell all that he has. He's the only man. 
So why does Jesus confront him about it? Why would, why would you say someone's maybe saying, why is Jesus picking on this man? <laughs> why does he confront him about it? See, Jesus is looking into this man's heart, and he knew that he had been possessed by his wealth. That this man had defined himself by his wealth and his status. Put it this way, his money and his lifestyle were his gods, and he worshipped them both. He worshipped them both. Forsaking that first command. Going back to where we place our worship. That we worship none other than him. I mean, Jesus goes on in Matthew 6 and he says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Often we get it confused. We go, where our heart is, there's our treasure. But no, Jesus says, where your treasure is, what you value, what you crave, what you want, where your treasure is, what you're all about, where your treasure is, there's your heart. See, for this young man, his treasure was his wealth. And there goes his heart. And you see the conflict here. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. So maybe we're thinking, is, Jesus, is Robbie asking me to sell, sell it all and give to the poor? No, I'm not. But Jesus asked him to sell it all. He also asked Zacchaeus to sell half. And he demands different amounts from other people. I'm not asking. That's between you and the Lord. But here's a quote that kind of got me thinking. It says, that Jesus, not, that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives, gives comfort. It really does. But only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. Listen, as I thought about that, that makes me nervous. That brings a conflict in my heart. So when it comes to giving and when it comes to sacrificing, when it comes to following and obeying the commands of Jesus, what it does is it reveals the condition of our hearts. It shows where our allegiance is. It shows what we worship. Listen, when we walk around like this, you ain't having my wallet. What it really reveals maybe is the condition of where our hearts are. And then maybe for some of us, giving is kind of easy. Grew up in the church, you know you're supposed to tithe, you give every week. Interesting, in the Old Testament, there's this great passage where, where uh, God gets onto the nation of Israel. He says, like, I don't want your sacrifices, I don't want your pledges, I don't want your fasting, and all the things you do for me, because I don't have your heart. I don't have your heart. And Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. And listen, God doesn't want one nickel from you if you're not committed to him. He doesn't want you to give anything unless your heart is his and he is your treasure. Like this whole giving idea is not going to make any sense until you realize or you come to understand that he's our treasure. He's our delight. He's worth it. That he's much better than anything this world may offer. Although it may appease for a period of time, it always leaves us lacking. And I understand the joy that comes from money, from possessions, how nice it is to get that new outfit. I understand the joys. I understand the, the security it gives us. And I believe God is always asking us to lay down our idols and come follow him.
that we would repent of our love of money, repent of our love for the things of this world, and pursue him. So you're not going to give, you're not going to understand giving unless you understand what he has gave and what he's after, which is our hearts. And if when our hearts are changed by the gospel, when our hearts are changed by his love and his generosity and his goodness, man, then it can understand, now we can give. We understand what he's done, and when we repent of our idols, we can understand now what he's asking us to do to give. So let's talk about giving. All right, we're going to change the, change the tone here a little bit, talk about giving. And to understand giving, God gives us some instructions on how we should give. The first is this, is that we should give cheerfully. 2 Corinthians 9.17 Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So it, when we give, it shouldn't be like we're paying the water bill which I hate to pay, right? It's like one of those things. It's just ridiculous. Like, it shouldn't be that way. You know, one of my love languages is giving. And, you know, Christmas is coming. And if I was to give my wife a wonderful gift that she's been wanting for a long time, and she was to get it on Christmas morning, and then after I said, babe, you know, I didn't really want to give you that this year. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think we we could afford it. It just wasn't a good idea. I would know I'd be in trouble that night, right? <laughs> Things aren't going good in the Grunwald household after that. See, listen, the way I write checks to God is different than the way I write checks to pay the bills. Listen, I, I don't get charged up to pay the water bill. But we should get charged up to paying or giving, not paying, giving to God. That we're, we're sowing into the kingdom. We're placing our finances and our wealth in his hands. We're giving back to him what he's blessed us. Secondly, we give generously. 2 Corinthians 9.11, it says, you, you will be enriched in every way so that you will be generous on every occasion and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Amen. There's a great parable in Matthew 18, right before this story where Jesus tells that there's a king who wants to settle his debts with one of his servants. This servant owes the king 10,000 bags of gold. Now, I don't know how much that is, but that's a whole lot of money back in those days. He owes them a lot. So the king orders this man into his chamber, where he then tells this man, I'm going to sell all your possessions, sell you, your family, and everything you own to reclaim my debts. The man, nervous like any man would, he pleads for his life. He pleads for his family. And the king, check this out, has pity on him and relieves his debts. And the man comes, goes back home, you would think, alleviated, excited. But it says in the parable that on his way home, he runs to one of his own servants, who only owes him a hundred pieces of silver. And he grabs him, he says, you give me my money. I tell you that, <laughs> because we're that debtor. And God has given us grace. And he's been gracious to us. He's been the giving God. It's who he is. And here's my question is, how can we as Christians be so stingy at times when we know the greatest gift that's been given? When we know his blessings and his truth that we have, when we know him, how can we be stingy? And I'm not talking just on Sunday mornings. I'm talking about in life in general. How can we be stingy when we know the debt that has been paid? 
And listen, he who has the most toys doesn't win. This world isn't our home, and we're just visitors here when we understand that it's easy to be generous. You know, you can't take your toys with you or your stuff. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Oh, that we'd be generous in our giving. Thirdly, we give humbly. Matthew 6, 1 through 5. Listen to these verses from Jesus, what he says. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have a reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. Look at me, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by them. Truly, I tell you, they have received the rewards in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. See, Jesus is teaching us here that when we give, we shouldn't be making a big deal about it. We shouldn't be showing off, which I call selfish giving. As often we give for the approval of others, so you would look good. So I would look good in front of you. And when we get to this, when we really break it down, we're not really giving, we're buying. I'm buying self-esteem. I'm giving so that you would think, I'm a good person. I'm buying the approval of others. I'm buying a pat on my back and going, woe is me, look at me. See, there should, as the scripture says, there should be this level of spiritual forgetfulness. Like, I, I don't want my left hand knowing what my right hand is doing. I want to forget. Listen, because if I remember, oh, look at all the things I've given. Look at all the things I've done. Look, at, look how great I am. What I end up doing is singing my own praise, right? So I forget. We need to forget. You know, just the other day, I was taking Doug around. Um, Doug's new here, one of the new pastors here, and I was just introducing him to some of the members here, and we came across someone who's been here for a long time, and I began to talk about how great they were. I was like, Doug, they do this, they do that. And then I used this word, I was like, and they're a founding member. See, I wonder when we say those kinds of words about one another, are we really honoring them? I really wonder, who's getting the praise when we talk to one another like that? When we have the attitude of, I built this, I've given to this, I did this, I wonder who's getting the praise. He says, do it in secret. Now, we can take that to the extreme, and does that mean that I only give online, and I'm only in my closet, and I only serve when no one else is watching? But I would say, no, it's all about the heart. It's all about the heart's motives of why we give and what we do. Fourthly, we give systematically. 1 Corinthians uh, 16.2 says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. I like this verse because you see a plan in place. And if you're a financial planner, you say Amen. Right? Your financial guy? There's a plan in place. In fact, in those days, the family used to gather around the table. They would place the income for the week and then divide it. See, there was a system that was organized. It was systematic. So there should be thought. There should be prayer. There should be conversations with your significant other when it comes to this matter. 
not done under compulsion or manipulation. I tell you one thing I love about our church, and I'm going to toot our own horn here for a second, is that we don't constantly get up here and tell you to give. Like Doug, Doug did this morning, he simply says, now we're going to take up our tithes and our offerings. Now my church background, it's funny, in my church background there was a 15 to 20 minute sermon, mini message before the sermon about why you should give. See, it shouldn't be done under manipulation. You know, we shouldn't be putting up pictures of, of starving cats, right? And we shouldn't be having uh, Sarah McLaughlin playing and saying, if you don't give, this cat's going to die, right? And tug on your hearts and emotions and, and go, you need to really give because this cat's going to die. So we give systematically. You've seen it. We give systematically. So we give generously, humbly. We give with enthusiasm. And we give systematically. Now maybe the question we need to ask this is how much? Like, I know I should give. Well, how much? Well, let me give you a couple obligations that Scripture gives us, commands as believers, that often I don't think the church talks about enough. And I'm talking about our church, but in, in big church. First is this, we have a duty to set aside money to pay our taxes. Matthew twenty two twenty one it says, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. Now listen, some of us have a real problem with that. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't agree with what's going on in Washington. We don't agree with the tax structure. We don't agree with that. And completely, I understand. I'm from Texas. <laughs> right? Like I say, Texas is the only state that wants nothing to do with the federal government. All right? Like, leave us alone. But listen, what I have to do is take my, my thoughts and my actions and my hearts and align it to Scripture, right? And in this area, we have to pay our taxes. That's what Jesus commands. Secondly, we have a duty to set aside money to care for our homes. I know you probably haven't heard this one before, but it's good. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we have a duty to take care of the food, the shelter, the clothes, the water, and the heat. That's an obligation. And I'll tell you what really ticks me off. You want to hear what really ticks me off? As I see on Christian television, there'll be some man with diamond cufflinks pleading with people to give promising a blessing if they give, manipulating the poor and the widows so that he could get his private plane and fly around, negating this obligation. Such a dangerous place. We have an obligation to take care of the home. God never asked us to forsake that. And he never asked us to forsake that we would honor our father and mother, which we talked about in the last series. That we need to plan accordingly for their needs. Now, here's the problem when we talk about this, is that we often get confused on our needs and our wants. We often get confused with our luxuries and our obligations. We have so many needs, which really actually wants. You know, one of the things I love about our Jamaica trip that I take the middle schoolers on, and some of the high schoolers, is that we, here's what happens when we get there. We stay in bunk beds. There's no A.C., no television, no computers, no iPhones, no hot water, 
And listen, everybody survives. Can you believe that? Everybody survives. And listen, by day three, no one's complaining, except about someone snoring, which that's understandable. We survive. See, what we need is far less than what we think. And often the things we think we need are really just wants. Like, we don't need to eat out as much as we do. We don't need upscale cars. We don't need nice clothing. We don't need entertainment. We don't need the new iPhone. Have you thought about that? How Apple's amazing? They make you want to upgrade your phone, all right? That's just slightly better than the one you already have and make you pay full price for it. Isn't that weird? But Apple has convinced us that we need these things. In reality, we really don't. Thirdly, we have a duty to set aside money to give to God. Deuteronomy 4.22-21 through 21 says, Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tenth of your grain, new wine, and olive oil, and the firstborn of your heads of your, and your flocks in the presence of the Lord your God, and place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. And this is the primary verse where we get tithing. The biblical principle of giving God 10% of our income and our first fruits. And listen, maybe you're a new believer, it's your first time here, and you never heard this before, but this is the biblical command, that we'd set aside 10% of our first fruits in the place that we worship, in the place that teaches us to love God. 1 Corinthians 6, 16, 2. It says, on every Lord's Day, each of you should put aside something from what you've learned during the week, which you've earned during the week, and use it for, use it for this offering. The amount depends on how much the Lord has helped you earn. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. I'd like to read you this little passage from a book Tim Keller wrote, Counterfeit Gods. And if you want to get your butt kicked, read this. It's so good. Page 62, I lost my place, sorry. Here's what he says when it comes to tithing. There have been times when people have come to me as their pastor and asked, asked about tithing, giving away a tenth of their annual income. They noticed that in the Old Testament there are many clear commands that believers should give away 10%. But in the New Testament, specific, quantitative requirements for giving are less than prominent. They often ask me, you don't think that now in the New Testament believers are absolutely required to give away 10%, do you? He says, I shake my head no. And they give a sigh of relief. But then I quickly add, I tell you, why don't you see, he says, I tell you, why don't you see this tithing requirement has laid out clearly in the New Testament? First, think. Have you received more of God's revelation, more of his truth, and more of his grace than the Old Testament believers or less? Usually there's an uncomfortable silence. Are you more debtors to grace than they were or less? Did Jesus just tithe his life and blood to save us, or did he give it all? See, tithing is a minimal standard for Christian believers. We certainly wouldn't want to be in a position of giving away less of our income than those who had so much less of an understanding of what God did to save them. 
as God did to save them. Now, I know many pastors are uncomfortable speaking about this, uncomfortable talking about the standard of tithing. And listen, I understand. I understand their concern. But listen, I, I have no problem talking about it because I've been giving to this church for eight years since I've been here. And, and, I, and I'll do that to get your praise, but to tell you God has blessed me and I've been faithful in this area. I have no problem telling you that I, that I gave previously at my church before where I disagreed with many of the doctrines, many of the decisions in the church about building new buildings and so forth. I disagreed. But what I find is there's such a blessing in being obedient to God in this area that I want to share that with you. I'm not trying to be proud in what I've given, but just telling you this is God's command. And it comes down to the heart here. 10% is the biblical historical standard. Listen, we start with 10% and we go from there. Anything above that is our offerings. Now, no doubt, it's hard. <laughs> no doubt there's a conflict we talked about earlier when it comes to giving. Because often we view and we take the stuff we've been given, and we think it's ours. And listen, when it comes to giving, it reveals the condition of our hearts. And listen, I know, and I feel it. And I feel how that stuff is so engraved in me that there's this need in my thinking that I have to have this or want this and how it can consume us. Like saving can, savings consume us, right? Gaining more can consume us. And I know these joys that they come, but I also see the biblical command and how harsh Jesus was, saying you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot have two masters. You either love one or hate the other. And as you read Jesus and you read what he asked, I don't know what he's asking you this morning. I know it starts with 10%, but maybe it's more. And that gets us a little nervous, doesn't it? And all of that just constantly reveals where our hearts are. Our hearts are loving these things. And I say as Americans, our biggest idol is money. It's the pursuit of wealth. It's what we think these things provide for us. In the end, we always know, though. It's funny, because we know this. We don't live it out. We know that it, it won't really provide what we're really needing. In the end, we still lack. But listen, I look at this young man who comes to Jesus, earnest, asking the real question, how do I gain eternal life? And I love the end part, which we didn't even cover. He says, after you sell this, after you lay your idols aside, after you give it up for the kingdom, come and follow me. You catch that part? This guy could have been one of the disciples. This could, this could have been one of the guys that saw Jesus do miracles and signs and wonders. He could have been there. He could have been the next Peter, the rock. He could, have been, he could have been there beside Jesus as he hung on the cross. But this young man loved his stuff. He could have been there. And Jesus loved him the whole time. It's so good. So, Father... We thank you that you love us enough to reveal our hearts.
And Jesus, forgive us because we want to justify. We can justify everything we spend. We can justify how we use our money. We can justify so many different things. But when we come to the reality and we come to see your truth and as you speak to our hearts, we realize we've worshipped idols. And I know right now in this room there is a battle that is raging here. There's a battle raging. There's decisions that need to be made. There's repentance that needs to be had. And maybe some of us, our allegiance has been to the things of this world. And you're calling us You're calling each and every one of us to step away, to lay that stuff aside, and to follow you. Father, I don't know the rest of this young man's story. I don't know what happens afterwards. But I pray for us that you will continually convict us. That as we look at your word and who you are, Convict us, God. I know there's so much in my own life I need to be convicted about. So much enjoyment of the world in my own life that I need to be convicted about. Father, would you love us enough to help us lay this stuff down and follow you? We pray this in your mighty name. All God's people said, amen.